you know, emissions in China decreased by 25% in February. Um, and then as the economy started to open up again, or as China tried to, to ramp up um, and reopen businesses, emissions increased again. But I think it's illustrative of this larger problem that leaders in Beijing face. You know, how do they balance economic growth with reductions in carbon emissions? Flashpoint. I'm your host, Andrew Holland. You know, I'm back in the office this week recording this podcast intro, uh, and it is a strange place to be with downtown Washington still cleared out from the coronavirus other than protests. And we, I just saw a protest walking down Pennsylvania Avenue, completely peaceful, but a little bit ironic to see it walking right by the Trump Hotel. We'll have more to say about the, that uh, and the state of civil military relations and other pressing issues. But I wanted to go into a discussion this week on what I think is probably the most important relationship in the world right now, and that's the U.S.-China relationship, and one particular aspect of it that is unfortunately being completely overlooked, and that is uh, greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. Alex Hackbarth, ASP's Director of Climate and Energy Security, has a new paper coming out titled Beijing's Quandary, Clean or Dirty Growth? Alex, in the paper, discusses the the difficult challenge that China's leadership faces. Will it go for economic growth that's dirty, or will it try to rein in carbon emissions and in so doing possibly harm uh, harm economic growth? It's an uncertain time, and we do stand at at this turning point in the wake of coronavirus. Decisions now uh, being made now in Beijing really may determine whether it's possible to meet our 2050 uh, Copenhagen climate targets of two degrees C above industrial pre-industrial levels. This is a very important relationship that is completely uh, ignored right now uh, by the, the U.S. administration. I hope you enjoy it. I really thought it was a great discussion. And now let's get into it. Alex Hackbarth, welcome to the podcast. Let's jump right in. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me on today. So reduced carbon emissions around the world as a result of the the economic response to coronavirus and COVID have been in the news a lot lately. You know, pictures of uh, suddenly clear skies, reduced particulate emissions, both here in the United States and around the world have really been in the news. Uh, But the largest carbon reductions have come from China, the the place where the, uh, the virus originated and you know, one of the homes of, of one of the most dr- draconian crackdowns on economic activity at all. Um, will China be able to maintain these reductions in emissions as it ra- ramps back up its economy? You know, they're going to have to be recovering from their first reduction in economic growth in decades. Uh, are they going to be able to maintain these reductions? Should they try? Uh, you've just written a paper, Beijing's Quandary, Dirty or Clean, Clean or Dirty Growth, uh, that we've published at ASP. What do you think? What's, what's the trajectory that you're seeing? Yeah, it, it's a great question, uh, especially in light of uh, COVID-19 and the impact that that has had on emissions around the world, as you noted. You know, emissions in China decreased by 25% in February. Um, and then as the economy started to open up again, or as China tried to, to ramp up 
um, and reopened businesses, emissions increased again. But I think it's illustrative of this larger problem that leaders in Beijing face. You know, how do they balance economic growth with reductions in carbon emissions? Mm -hmm. um, it's possible that in the aftermath of COVID, you know, China will favor economic growth over reductions in carbon. You know, focus on this short-term um, economic growth goal. Um, over longer term climate goals uh, that have been in place for, for some years now. Um, but you know, to really appreciate the quandary, quandary that China's leadership faces, it's really important to understand you know, the importance that the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, places on economic growth and its relationship mm -hmm. to China's energy policy. So maybe we can talk about that a little bit too. Yeah, so, so let's do that. Let's go back in history. So, you know, China famously uh, opened up under Deng Xiaoping uh, in the late 1970s, 1980s. Uh, there was a liberalization of the economy. There was a uh, opening to the world, free trade zones, uh, and, uh, and it saw this, this rapid growth. What did you see? What, what do we see in that time in terms of its emissions and its growth? Yeah. So as you as you noted, you know, uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, made it, you know, uh, fundamental uh, to his his growth strategy for China. You know, they're coming out of the Cultural Revolution, famine. You know, the Chinese people were desperate for, um, you know, food, but they were desperate for economic growth, and so economic growth was central to his his uh, strategy for China. And as you noted, China made, you know. Um, a large number of reforms, economic reforms that reopened the economy. So between 1980, when these reforms really started to take effect, and 2017, you know, China's real gross GDP grew at an average annual rate of roughly 10%. Yeah. That number probably doesn't seem like a lot to people who don't follow, you know, uh, GDP growths for various countries, but that's huge. Yeah. Um, that's, that's um, you know, astronomical breakneck speeds. Yeah. Um, and as a result of China's dramatic economic, economic growth, it's now a major global economic power and the world's largest carbon emitter. So right. Second you know, largest so, economy in the world, right? Right, yeah, right, yeah, exactly. Behind the United States, you know, uh, ahead of Japan. It is, it, it is an economic powerhouse. And, and that 10% when compounded, annually like that is, it, you're right, it's a ridiculous number. It is absolutely almost unprecedented, I would argue, in, in human history. Right, right, yes. And, you know, as a result, China's lifted more than 800 million Chinese people out of poverty. Yeah. That's more than twice the U.S. population when you think about it, right? Um, so, you know, huge um, strides in terms of, you know, um, personal income levels, you know, increasing, people uh, being uh, moved out of poverty. But, you know, with that comes, you know, a large increase in China's carbon emissions. And right. between 1990 and 2017, China's carbon emissions increased fourfold. Mm -hmm. um, in 2011 alone, China burned nearly as much coal as the rest of the world combined, right? right. So that includes the United States. Right. That includes other developing economies. That includes all of Europe. Um, and, you know, more recently in 2018, coal made up more than 50 percent, 59 to be exact, uh, percent of 
China's total energy use. So China has really relied on coal in terms of uh, growing the economy. And much of, you know, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, much of the CCP's legitimacy is predicated on China's continued economic growth. And, you know, in 2010, the the CCP announced that it was going to double the size of the economy by 2020. Um, And that would require you know, the economy to continue to grow at at least 6%. So not the 10%, you know, that they were, um, you know, growing at previously, mm-hmm. but a minimum of 6%, which is still incredible to think about when you're looking at other, right. you know, growing economies. Um, and in late 2019, the con- uh, Chinese economy grew just 6.1%. So that's the lowest level in nearly three decades. And right. that was before COVID. Right. Right. So that's before, you know, they had to shut down major industrial uh, centers and manufacturing hubs. And so, you know, to combat this sluggish growth in late 2019. So again, before COVID, Premier Li announced that the government was going to relax some of the air quality controls uh, that they'd been put in place that had been put in place over the last couple of years um, and urged the coal industry to play a role in securing, you know, the, the country's economic future. And there's been lots of speculation, but many think that this policy announcement was designed to assist, you know, very important yet dirty drivers of economic activity like yeah. coal and the cement industries. Yeah, and that's that's a really uh, important important point here. And you know, as as the American Security Project, we think about security, and of course, China thinks about it its internal energy security a lot. Uh, and you talk about coal predominantly their only source of domestic sourced energy is coal. They have some oil up in Manchuria. Uh, They had become energy independent under Mao. But what does that mean if everybody's impoverished, right? Right, right. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know. Very little. Very little. (laughs) So so they they had started to import a lot, a lot more oil uh, from the Middle East. They're, They're a much larger importer of of Middle Eastern oil than the U.S. is now. Uh, importing gas, uh, and coal remains the, the one that, even though they're importing coal as well, but coal remains the, the predominant domestically sourced energy source. So, so there, there's a security component to that as well, as well as you know, an economic growth argument. Just, just like here in the United States, where you know, for whatever reason, uh, West Virginia coal miners uh, have a disproportionate political impact. I think there is some disproportionate political uh, support for domestic coal mining, domestic coal industries there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, much like um, in the United States, right, where we're trying to kind of diversify our energy portfolio, right, you know, developments of renewables, clean energy sources, you know, China. China's trying to do the same, right, for energy security purposes. When you rely so heavily on energy sources that you have to import, you know, whether it's coal or oil or natural gas from Russia, you know, they signed a multi-billion, tens of billion dollar um, natural gas deal with Russia, you know, that makes you insecure and vulnerable to to, uh, reductions in, in energy sources. And so, you know, in in recent years, they've turned well under President Xi's leadership, really. Um, and starting in 2012, they really started to invest heavily in renewable energy sources. Right. Solar um, has been in the news a lot related to China, but hydro as well, yeah. um, wind. 
I mean, you, you talked you talked some about the the kind of deal that the Communist Party has has made with the people that we will give you economic growth in exchange. You will not, you know, uh, revolt against the Communist Party. Um, but that gets to a, a there is another threat there that, you know, the number one source within Chinese cities over the last decade and a half of unrest, of kind of political activism outside of the allowed Communist Party political act activism has been around pollution, uh, has been around the particulate pollution. You know, a decade ago, we saw these pictures of, you know, Beijing in the smog where you could hardly see across the street and, you know, other, other sort of coal areas of, of China where the smog was so thick, you could almost, you know, cut it with a spoon. Uh, so, you know, that, that was a, a, a problem too. We shouldn't, we shouldn't just pretend that, you know, China is growing breakneck with coal and, and it's, it, it has no domestic ramifications either. Right. No, that gets to the heart of this quandary that China faces, right? Yeah. Beijing's leadership faces. On the one hand, as you mentioned, the CCP has made you know, this agreement, if you will, with the Chinese people that we will continue to grow the economy, we'll continue uh, to increase your personal incomes, we'll, uh, we'll lift millions out of poverty, but you know, yeah. don't revolt against us. Right. Right. That's on the one hand, right? Yeah. On the other hand... Um, you know, the Chinese people, now that their, you know, standards of living are increasing, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs almost, you know, yeah. they, they can turn to other concerns that they have with their government and, and hold their government accountable for, for other things. And as you mentioned, pollution is a huge one. And I lived in Beijing in 2014. I was studying at Xinhua University. And uh -huh. From my dorm room on really bad days. Now I was there, you know, in the fall and early winter, and on really bad days, you could not see across the street to the building that was right. just across the street because wow. the, the pollution was so bad. And then in I believe it was November, the Apex summit was in Beijing. And they turned off all the surrounding coal plants, all the pollution disappeared. It was blue skies for days, <laughs> and the Chinese media was writing about blue or apex blue skies blue skies apex something along those lines and people were like yeah do you see i mean literally with the switch at a coal power plant you can go from dense hazardous pollution to to clear skies for days yeah um and so you know it's this this tension that the the chinese government faces um and you know is is a very difficult uh, policy decision. And uh, that's right. It, and it, it is really interesting that during that time, so 2014, and, and so throughout the 2010s, you write in your paper that emissions, which, you know, carbon emissions are not a, a, a pure sort of tracker of uh, pollution, you know, kind of the visible pollution. It's, it's, it's different things, but they do track pretty close. Yeah. Um, but you, you, you write that emissions really plateaued in the 2000s. And, and you said it partially that was because of, of Xi's initiatives, green initiatives. Um, I would argue some that it also had, had something to do with American pressure. You know, the, the Obama administration made engagement with China uh, on climate to be a key, um, a key political goal. Uh, John Kerry spent a lot of time with his counterpart 
showing them that you can have economic growth without pollution. Uh, you know, I remember a, a, a meeting that, that he took them to uh, Boston Harbor and said, look, we, we used to not be able to do anything in the water here. It was so dirty. Uh, but now it's, it's clean and it hasn't, hasn't affected uh, economics of, of Boston at all. Um, so I think that that's, that's an important point here, that, that they, were, they were shooting for clean growth, green growth. And, you know, if you read some of the stuff about their Belt and Road Initiative, they talk about it as a, a clean, green Belt and Road. You know, whether that's just rhetoric or reality is, is interesting. But certainly they were, they were pushing for a green growth leadership model, you know, something where, you know, uh, solar power, hydro, these things are, are both important for domestic, but also a big, um, a big market for exports as well and, and leading the industry of the future. So what, yeah. what's changed? You know, why, why is that sort of moved away? Yeah, so I, I think you make some really good points about you know China's recent history. I think U.S. pressure on China um, in you know during the Obama administration after President Xi came to power, I think was was fundamental in in encouraging some of these domestic changes within China. Mm -hmm. The 2014 bilateral agreement between the U.S. and China on uh, reduced carbon emissions, uh, which I was a uh, you know, uh, an agreement that John Kerry was instrumental in, yeah. in achieving, Secretary Kerry. And I think that, you know, U.S. leadership and pressure on climate change is critical to getting China to see uh, the, the value um, in pursuing clean growth. And, and the Chinese government was investing heavily. Let's, right. you know, not forget, you know, in the 2000s under President Xi, or in the mid-2000s, 2010, sorry. 2010, so. um, yeah. Uh, after President Xi came to power, he actually put together a, a clean energy growth strategy uh, mm -hmm. that he issued in 2012. And they made huge uh, leaps in terms of uh, clean energy development, hydropower, right? You know, the yeah. controversial Three Gorges Dam, um, which costs huge over, yeah, 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 tons of power, costs yeah. over, you know, $37 billion and is the world's largest hydro, yeah. hydro dam, 22 yeah. About over 22,000 megawatts of electricity yeah, yeah. from the three. That's like, for context, that's 22 large nuclear power plants. It's huge. Right. It's a huge amount it's of huge. power. <laughs> right. Controversial, yeah. uh, but, but, you know, a huge investment uh, yeah. by, by the Chinese government. Wind power uh, grew more than threefold between 2012 and 2017 in China. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, they... I believe their um, wind power installations make China the world's largest wind power market. Um, mm -hmm. Its onshore capacity is, I think, roughly 46% of the world market, and its offshore capacity is roughly 40% of the world market. Crazy. But again, huge investments yeah. uh, in wind power. And of course, solar. You know, we've heard a lot about China and solar. Um, the Chinese government is, uh, well, China is the largest supplier and consumer of solar power. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of that had to do with investment subsidies from the Chinese government. Um, and they saw it as an opportunity, like you said, for, for economic growth to export um, around the world at 
in the U.S. unfortunately uh, caused some problems with our own domestic solar market. But, right, right. Yeah. But made it cheaper too. Right, so, right. so increased the installed capacity uh, while also threatening domestic manufacturing. So, yeah. Yeah. And so now China's home to, you know, more than two thirds of the world's solar uh, production capacity. Yeah. And I don't really touch on this in the paper, but, you know, China's electrical vehicle uh, adoption, um, you know, clean, uh, they, I think they're like 99% of the world's electrical public transportation, mm -hmm. um, electrical vehicle public transportation is in China, uh, yeah. which is crazy to think about. Um, yeah. But a lot of this, you know, was, was a result of President Xi trying to grow the economy um, in a green way. Um, and as a result, I think, of U.S. pressure, yeah. um, which I think is, is fundamental as we look yeah. forward to do we want, how do we want China to make this choice and where can the U.S. influence Beijing? Yeah. Um, I think U.S. leadership is critical. Yeah, there. international pressure. I mean, that, that was kind of the idea with the Paris Accords, right, was that right. you commit to something, uh, you figure it out yourself, nationally determined commit, uh, commitments, uh, figure it out what's appropriate for you, but then you record it and then the international community will hold you to, the, to those uh, targets. I think it's interesting uh, that they had a 2020 target, uh, which was to reduce carbon intensity by 40% by 20, 2020. So that, that's intensity, not absolute emissions, mm -hmm. but the emissions per unit of GDP. Uh, and they actually met it three years earlier. They, they met it in 2017. So maybe that, that said that their target wasn't strong enough, but also that there was actual things happening. And you know, their 2030 target is to, uh, to have emissions peak before 2030. Uh, and uh, I, I think there's, there's good accounts that as of now, they were on target for it. But what you write and, and what we've been reading is that this may be under threat now. So, right. so as we move towards a, a different sort of economic model in the 2020s, uh, one where, you know, maybe U.S.-China trade war has been going on for a while. Maybe China is no longer a export powerhouse. Maybe they can no longer count on clean energy exports and, and trade, and they have to think more about their domestic production. So what do you have a lot of domestic coal? Uh, and so this is going to be a real, real question. As you write, it's a quandary. Um, what sort of growth do you go after? clean or dirty? And, and what, can, what can deliver those numbers, uh, the GDP growth numbers that they need? Uh, so it's, a, it's an open question, a difficult choice. for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, the early indications, you know, if we're looking into the future, you know, how is China going to balance, you know, uh, this issue uh, of economic growth or, and or clean, uh, mm -hmm. um, clean growth? And, and, Let's be honest. It's not. It's not a binary choice either. You know, it's right, not. Right. We shouldn't. Just, we shouldn't pretend. Yeah. That that if right, you, right. if you don't if you don't use coal, you're not going to have economic growth. That's right, that's a right. that's a false choice. Absolutely. And um, so you know how how does China stimulate growth in you know COVID's aftermath? Mm -hmm. Early indications are that they will rely heavily on coal. We've seen that, you know, in President, or sorry, Premier Lee's announcement in late uh, 2019 when, you know, economic growth numbers, 
you know, the economy contracted and there was only 6.1% growth in the last quarter of 2019, mm-hmm. you know, they, they turned to coal. Now that's easy, right? Because it's something that you can turn on, turn off, you know, it's a lot easier to get started and ramp up. So it could be that the Chinese government leans heavily on coal in the short term, right? To, mm-hmm, to kind of get mm-hmm. the economy going again. Um, but they may, you know, um, as time goes on, revert back to their longer term climate goals. You know, that doesn't mean that China is giving up on, on clean growth, but they have set a target for themselves for 2020, which was to become a moderately prosperous society by the end of 2020. And this is a goal that they set in 2010, which, you know, included doubling the size of the economy in 10 years. So it could be that they favor this short term short-term economic goal, you know, um, through the end of 2020 or even a little bit past 2020 and then turn back to, um, you know, the almost the as a term. stimulus measure in, in the right. short term. Interesting. But the problem is, of course, if part of the stimulus is building coal power plants or something like that, it's not just the burning of the coal. It's that you have this built infrastructure that that is there and, cement. and like, yeah cement production all that sort of stuff yeah, yeah. Um, but let's yeah. let's not forget that china is also you know uh, all of this discussion about carbon emissions also has to do with climate change too right and, <laughs> it's and central yeah exactly china <laughs> Yeah, it's central. And China is not immune to the threats of climate change either. Right. Um, so, you know, that as they look into the future, you know, their, their magic ball, um, you know, that might, might help sway them, especially as they try to exert more influence in their, you know, in the region, in the Asia Pacific. You know, they're trying to court countries who are on the front lines of climate change. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if they're starting up a bunch of coal power plants, right, and investing in dirty economic growth, that's how these countries may see it, you yeah. know, well, how, why would they support a country or align themselves with China when they could, you know, potentially align themselves with the United States if the United States exerts, you know, some more directed climate or, leadership in the region? Or, or you know, maybe an, a third country that actually takes its climate uh, stuff seriously. Yeah, or that, or that, yes. Um, you know, but, but I think you're right. We did see that in, in like, uh, in the, the Pacific, you know, that the Chinese come with money to, to help adapt and change these, you know, small island states. And the U.S. comes and says, no, don't take money from the Chinese. But, you know, then doesn't, doesn't show up. And, and that's been a problem, uh, you know, for the last couple of years in terms of U.S. strategy and foreign policy in the Asia Pacific, you know, withdrawing yeah. from TPP. Yeah, that was a, a, a huge setback in terms of, um, you know, courting countries in the Asia Pacific and the ability to exert, you know, leadership. And, and especially since there were very strong environmental provisions uh, yeah. in, in, in TPP. Yeah. And then, you know, Retreating from and withdrawing from Paris too, yeah. you know, set us back. Uh, I think in the terms or in the eyes of a lot of these South Pacific countries, you know, yes. the U.S. has really retreated from climate leadership. Yes, yes, no, I, and I think that's right. That that one of the key sort of soft power things of the the 21st century now is going to be how your country is perceived on climate. Um, so. Uh, 
you know, we, we like to end these, uh, these podcasts with kind of forward, forward looking th- thoughts and statements. And, and, you know, at ASP, we like to say, we don't chase the headlines of today, but what are the headlines of tomorrow? So what's the headline in five years here that we should be preparing for? Should it be something like, you know, we're going to have to drag China back into clean growth or, or are we looking towards a, a more favorable headline of, you know, China and the United States meet their targets and, and start to fix this? Yeah, um, it's, it's, a great, it's a great question. And I love forward thinking. You know, I think the Chinese government is uh, very strategic. Uh, and they're forward thinkers and they're long-term thinkers. And I think that the Chinese government will find a, a balance between continued economic growth, potentially at a slower rate, mm-hmm. um, you know, definitely not 10%, and maybe not even 6%, but they'll continue to grow the economy, but they'll yep. do it in a more sustainable way. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that part of that has to do with their foreign policy and their eagerness to garner more influence in its own backyard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Belt Road Initiative, like you mentioned earlier, you know, yeah. that there was a lot of, and it could be rhetoric, there was a lot of discussion about a greater sustainable Belt Road Initiative or making investments in green infrastructure. Um, and I think that that was very strategic on, on the Chinese government's part. Um, so maybe, maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but I hope that, you know, the headline in five years is that, you know, the Chinese government has found this balance between, you know, reduced carbon emissions, um, increased investment in clean uh, and green energy and technology, um, but have continued to grow the economy because, I think that if the Chinese can figure it out, figure out how to do it, it's a good template for other developing countries who have large populations, Uh, Africa, countries in Africa, who, you know, this doesn't have to be, like you mentioned earlier, a false choice, right, between economic growth and clean, sustainable growth. Um, And I think, I think China can figure it out. It would be a good template. Yeah, and they can kind of export that around the world. Well, I think that's a good optimistic take to end on. Uh, the paper is Beijing's Quandary, Clean or Dirty Growth. You can see it on uh, the American Security Project website uh, or various of our social media platforms. Alex, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Andrew. Love the conversation.